A lot of the information in this podcast is covered in greater depth in my book, Compact of the Republic, The League of States and the Constitution. You can pick that up at www.compactoftherepublic.com. In that work, I argued that the American struggle with Britain was a constitutional crisis and a war for independence rather than a traditional revolution. Much of the content from this series is expounded upon in greater detail in Chapter 2. Again, you can pick that book up at www.compactoftherepublic.com. Are you ready to master historical topics without ingesting hours of readings or boring professors? Dave Benner, author of Compact of the Republic and contributor to the Tenth Amendment Center and Mises Institute, is your host. Sit back and behold the obliteration of conventional historical narratives, preferring dangerous freedom to peaceful slavery since 1776. It's Brush Fires of the Mind. The Struggle for American Independence Episode 19, Independence. Hello everyone and welcome back. In the last episode, we talked about the Siege of Boston and the meticulous masterwork of the military prodigy, Henry Knox, in using the guns at Fort Ticonderoga to assist George Washington against the British at Boston. As we discussed, Howe was forced to evacuate for the time and Washington then brought the Continental Army into Boston victorious. By 1776, several petitions to the king, George III, went unanswered, unread, and unrecognized. One of them was the Olive Branch Petition, which sought to reconcile the differences between the North American colonists and the British. The other, the Declaration of the Causes and Necessity of Taking Up Arms, was a justification for the use of arms at Lexington and Concord. The king by this time had already declared the colonists in, quote, open and avowed rebellion. So he was not going to intervene in their favor. There were multiple military clashes between the Patriots and the British forces by 1776. Many of them, in fact. Some at Lexington and Concord. There was the issue in Richmond with the militia forces essentially threatening Lord Dunmore, the royal governor there. The capture of Fort Ticonderoga by Benedict Arnold and Ethan Allen and the Green Mountain Boys, and the Quebec Campaign, which we haven't talked about yet, but basically Benedict Arnold is going to get permission from the Continental Congress to embark upon a Canadian invasion in which he takes about 1,100 forces there. But this campaign is generally thought to be disastrous because about half of those forces either refuse to continue or decide to not assist after a certain point or die along the journey. We won't discuss that in further depth, but we certainly will in the future. By this point, the independence movement is growing larger and larger. Remember, the political capital of people like John Dickinson and Edward Rutledge and George Reed, those that thought that the king would truly hear the concerns of the colonists out and jump in and assist in their favor, had kind of lost out. Many believe that there is no going back. And remember, we talked about how Patrick Henry famously professed that the war is already here. Give me liberty or give me death. So, in May of 1776, Rhode Island becomes the first colony, now state, to declare independence from the British government. It did so on May 4th, 1776. Jonathan Arnold drafted a set of resolutions that dissolved all allegiances with Britain. Governor Nicholas Cook of the state 
sent a letter to George Washington with a copy of the act, quote, discharging the inhabitants of this colony from the allegiance to the King of Great Britain. So, in this way, Rhode Island became the first state independent of a European power in the whole Western world. This was a significant step that rarely gets mentioned because it actually transpired before the Declaration of Independence. And Rhode Island, instead of adopting a state constitution immediately, it basically used its colonial charter, its original colonial charter, and removed all references to the king and the crown within it. Rhode Island didn't develop a state constitution until 1842. Also, another state declared independence prior to the adoption of the Declaration of Independence in the Richard Henry Lee Resolution, which we'll discuss shortly. And that was Virginia, where a lot of this radical sentiment had always been popular. It had been a hotbed of Whig attitudes and mind frames from the very beginning, remember, even from 1765 onward. And Virginia declared independence in May of 1776. It drafted a Declaration of Rights that was ratified on June 12, 1776 as well. This was primarily the, the work of George Mason, and it articulated the rights of Virginians that would, that would be guaranteed in this new Republican society. Virginians also shortly thereafter drafted a constitution, again, primarily written by George Mason. This was the first written and ratified constitution by people's representatives in the whole history of the world. And really, written constitutions are mostly an American concoction. Now, there had been previous written constitutions such as the Instrument of Government and the Humble Petition and Advice in Britain that kind of underscored the Cromwellian Interregnum and the Commonwealth, later known as the Protectorate. But that those constitutions weren't ratified by regional representatives of the people. Instead, they were ratified by Cromwell and his councils. Thomas Jefferson actually hoped to contribute to the Virginia Constitution, but was in Philadelphia at the time, and his draft of the Constitution arrived by the time that it was too late. George Mason's version had been ratified. And an interesting facet of this whole discussion is that Jefferson continually cam complained while he was in Philadelphia, asking to be relieved so he could get back to Virginia and help, you know, craft and kind of mold the new Virginia government in his preferred image, rather than, you know, take part in what became known as a more famous event in the drafting of the Declaration of Independence. Patrick Henry was elected the first Republican governor of the state of Virginia, and it really was a figurehead role in comparison to the legislature, which was much more powerful. The legislature had the ability to elect the governor in Virginia, and really most of the political power resided with the Virginia General Assembly. After Virginia had declared independence under its own will, its state legislature sent instructions to its delegates in the Second Continental Congress in Philadelphia to introduce a resolution to declare independence for all the colonies and form states. Richard Henry Lee, the famous statesman of Virginia, one of the most famous Virginians of his time, certainly, introduced a resolution on June 7, 1776 that called for this. Delegates then shortly thereafter from the Continental Congress were sent back to their home, home colonies 
to get instructions for how to proceed. Because remember, the delegations were, that were there were essentially ambassadors of the colonial governments. So the colonial governments essentially called the shots when it came to voting. Continental Congress didn't really have independent political power, only the colonies and later states. So in the Second Continental Congress, a committee of five was formed to draft a document declaring independence should tides trend in that direction. So if this thing were going to be adopted, we need to articulate it in some way, so there has to be a draft. The Lee Resolution called for the following, quote, Resolved that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is, and ought to be, totally dissolved. That it is expedient forthwith to take the most effectual measures for forming foreign alliances. That a plan of confederation be prepared and transmitted to the respective colonies for their consideration and approbation. So that is what the famous Lee Resolution called for. Not only were the allegiances of the colonies to be severed from the British government, essentially secession, they were withdrawing from a governmental system, but also the purpose for this was to immediately start to gain foreign alliances that would be amiable to the interests of the colonies and willing to fight with them against the British government. Also, to form a new structural government that would include all of the new colonies, or I should say new states, from the former colonies. So, in order to draft the Declaration of Independence, a committee of five was formed. The people on this committee were John Adams, the chairman, Thomas Jefferson, the famous statesman Benjamin Franklin, the Connecticut statesman Roger Sherman, and from New York, Robert Livingston, all of which were very highly respected people um, that were generally mostly from states that had already favored independence, and certainly the people on that committee favored independence. John Adams thought that it was vital that Jefferson write this thing, and it was for three reasons according to Adams' own account. Number one, he was a Virginian. Number two, he wasn't obnoxious, suspected, or unpopular as Adams himself perceived his own sensibilities to be. And those are Adams' direct words, by the way. Also, Adams had read Jefferson's A Summary View of the Rights of British America and was impressed with Jefferson's penmanship. He said, this guy can write, so he should write this document. And he's a Virginian, he's not obnoxious like I am, so Jefferson should write it. So Jefferson did just that, staying in Philadelphia, I remember complaining because he wanted to do more to influence his own state government than write this Declaration of Independence. In about 17 days, he wrote the draft while staying in a home in Philadelphia. The draft was reviewed by the five-man committee once Jefferson had finished it, and a few textual adjustments were made, but most of the adjustments would come later when the Second Continental Congress, um, in general, takes a look at it. And if you ever watch the HBO miniseries John Adams, I think it does a pretty good job of characterizing this committee and the proceedings um, and the discussions that took place when it was being drafted and kind of adjusted. 
Thomas Jefferson famously articulated what he called, what he considered the purpose of the Declaration of Independence later in life. He said, quote, neither aiming at originality of principle or sentiment, nor yet copied from any particular and previous writing, it was intended to be an expression of the American mind and to give to that expression the proper tone and spirit called for by the occasion. The occasion was severance. The causes that impelled the separation were to be articulated, and it was done really in a masterful way by Jefferson. However, Jefferson got angry when the Second Continental Congress essentially picked apart all the verbiage. Not all of it, but much of it was retained. Adams said that he would defend every word of it. However, some of the phrases were adjusted slightly to Jefferson's chagrin. There were four sections to the Declaration of Independence. The first, the preamble, articulated the grand purpose of it. Why was this document being written, and why had people... Why was the Richard Henry Lee resolution adopted? That was the purpose of the preamble. The second section is a philosophical statement concerning government's purpose. Jefferson said that government existed to protect life, liberty, and property, or in the document, life, liberty, and happiness. This was an especially Lockean concept because John Locke had written in his second treatise on civil government that that was the only legitimate purpose of government. It also acknowledged the right to alter or abolish the government forcefully if necessary if it started to become tyrannical and engage in a long train of usurpations. The third section lists a series of grievances against King George III, many of which we've already discussed throughout previous episodes in this series because remember, this thing took a decade to develop, over a decade of continual grievances that kept building and building upon each other. And this didn't just start overnight. There were several things. It wasn't just taxation. There were more things that Jefferson had pointed out that had really raised the ire of the states so much so that they are willing to do this. The fourth section, and perhaps the most important, affirmed that the states were, quote, free and independent states, each with independent powers becoming a state. And in the fourth paragraph, you can see that it compares the states now with, quote, the state of Great Britain, unquote. So these states were being perceived as countries. This wasn't a formation of any kind of national government, but the states had broken free from the mother country. As I mentioned, the document borrowed heavily from John Locke. And in fact, Thomas Jefferson idolized Locke. He called him one of the three greatest man, men to have ever existed. Um, many of the sentiments contained within are certainly Lockean, and Locke was a major influence not only to Jefferson, but many of the who are known as the people that are known as the founding fathers. He was the most influential social compact theorist and Enlightenment philosopher to the founders generally. The Declaration of Independence is not a founding document. That is a common misconception, and the reason for this is because it didn't found any government. The states found their own governments. It didn't unite or create any framework, and there was no union to speak of until the Articles of Confederation were ratified in 1781. So it's kind of a mistaken view to call this a founding document. Really, it was an ordinance of secession. The Declaration of Independence actually had no authoritative force. Remember, all political power emanated 
from the individual states, the former colonies, now states. And the, delegate, the delegations there were ambassadors, like I said before. In general, the Declaration of Independence was a common cause declaration of secession that articulated the causes that impelled the states to the separation from Great Britain. In one of the most famous passages from the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson wrote the following, quote, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such a form as to them shall seem the most likely to affect their safety and happiness. When a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such a government and to provide new guards for their future security. So Jefferson's really saying a lot here. Not only is it a people's free willed ability to overthrow their government and replace it with a new government if they wanted to, they can rearrange its powers and reorganize its functions as to more likely affect its safety and happiness. And Jefferson here is saying that when a long train of abuses and usurpations transpire, it becomes an obligation. It says it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such a government. So this can't be mistaken for anything other than to rise up against the government and replace it forcefully if necessary. And this is something that John Locke had talked about in his second treatise on civil government as well. In another passage, and what I kind of referred to earlier is perhaps the most important part of the Declaration of Independence, Jefferson wrote this, quote, that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states, they have the full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and do all other things and acts which independent states may have right do. So Jefferson here is saying that not only are these United Colonies, now states, free from the control of Great Britain, they're totally independent polities. They're essentially their own countries. They're independent states. They have, like the state of Great Britain, the powers to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, etc. All the traditional powers of a sovereign state are now possessed by these states. So not only were they free from Great Britain, but free from each other. They were independent countries. At first, some states were very uneasy about the adoption of the Declaration, and for good reason in some cases. In South Carolina, the legislature wanted to guarantee unanimity, so the delegation headed by people like Edward Rutledge basically suggested to Adams and the pro-independence faction that it would only vote in favor of independence if unanimity could be assured. So essentially, unless all the states that are voting vote in favor of this thing, we're going to have to vote against it. And again, the HBO miniseries on John Adams, I think, characterizes this pretty well. In New York, the delegation did not have instructions 
from their legislature to vote in favor of independence, even though Robert Livingston certainly favored independence, and it abstained from the vote in the end. New York was an interesting case, too, because the British Royal Navy, headed by Richard Howell, William Howell's brother, was amassing ships right off the coast of Long Island, and we'll eventually talk more about that in the next episode. But New York was in a precarious position, and it hadn't received instructions to vote in favor by the time of the vote on July 2nd. In Pennsylvania, some of the delegates were actually persuaded to be absent from the vote so that the official vote of the delegation would be a vote in favor of independence. One of these delegates was John Dickinson, who even the next month refused to sign the Declaration of Independence, still thinking that some kind of reconciliation was possible and that the decision to declare independence would be foolhardy because it would cause a catastrophe. Delaware's delegation was totally torn on the issue. Thomas McCain was in favor of it. However, George Reed was not in favor of independence. And what ended up happening there was a tie-breaking ambassador, Caesar Rodney, arrived just in the nick of time as voting was taking place on July 2nd. And he broke the vote in favor of independence and Delaware was carried. The Richard Henry Lee resolution was adopted on July 2nd, 1776, with New York as the only state abstaining from the vote. The Declaration of Independence was adopted two days later on July 4th, 1776. Well, shouldn't technically July 2nd be Independence Day? Well, some people thought so. John Adams certainly thought that it would be. He wrote a famous passage professing that, you know, July 2nd would be the day that Americans always celebrate, but Really, it became the adoption of the Declaration of Independence that established the traditional day of independence as we celebrate it today. The event was immediately publicized in the press and the document was disseminated to foreign states. Remember, one of the goals behind this thing was to contract um, foreign sympathies and hopefully foreign alliances, which eventually did transpire, but they wanted to publicize this thing so that this would be considered a serious endeavor, that we weren't just trying to justify resistance anymore. The states were actually openly declaring independence. And George Washington, once he got word of this, famously read the Declaration of Independence to the Continental Army. So Continental forces had become aware of this thing, and it certainly was deemed to be something that raised the morale, at least at first. The morale would be an interesting thing throughout this conflict as we will uh, come to find out. Well, there was many reactions across the globe concerning this event and truly it was looked upon and deemed as one of the most incredible historical moments. Even in its time, I think many people realize that. Edmund Burke wrote, quote, I do not know how to wish success to those whose victory is to separate from us a large and noble part of our empire. Still less do I wish success to injustice, oppression, and absurdity. So kind of, Edmund Burke takes a nuanced position here. He was kind of, you know, fighting for the cause of the Patriots because he thought that that would actually be beneficial to Great Britain, and it was just a bad decision to involve uh, harsh policies toward them. But he certainly did sympathize with those that felt oppressed, and that certainly made up a large swath of the colonists. The Scots Magazine, one of the most famous 
publications of its time wrote, quote, These gentlemen assume to themselves an unalienable right of talking nonsense, unquote. So not everyone looked at this event in the same way. And really the, the typical prevailing sentiment in Britain was this thing is going to be quashed quickly. You know, we have the greatest military in the world. We are the greatest imperial power in the world, probably in Europe at the time. And we should be able to end this thing militarily. Richard Price, a famous pamphleteer in Britain who also sympathized with the colonists, wrote the following. Quote, no wonder then that they have turned upon us and obliged us to remember that they are not children. So there were sympathizers even across the pond, even in England. And this event was truly an uphill battle from the beginning for the newly born states. And it certainly wouldn't be an easy feat to defeat the British military, as will become clear in the next years. Among the sympathizers to the American cause were the French, who, remember, had read common sense in vast numbers, and it was extremely popular there. The pro-independence movement was very popular in France, although official government policy would not yield to assist the Americans until 1777, as we'll come to find out. And that only happened after a very specific set of events that really convinced France and the world that, you know, this cause was serious, there's a professional army, and successes could be made against the British. With that said, let's talk about the readings recommended for today's episode. The first is the Virginia Declaration of Rights, which really is kind of a cornerstone doc in the whole constitutional tradition of the world. From that point forward, that document has influenced perhaps more constitutions in the world than any other document, and really it was kind of a precursor that contains a lot of the same language that ended up in the United States uh, Bill of Rights. Again, this was primarily the work of George Mason. Also alongside of that, Virginia's Constitution of 1776, also written by Mason, the first constitution written and ratified by the people's representatives in the history of the world. The Declaration of Independence itself, which is a pretty quick read. Kevin Gutzman's Virginia's American Revolution delves into these matters in depth and is definitely recommended. The Always Great Mercy Otis Warren, Rise, Progress, and Termination of the American Revolution, which we have been using from the start in this series. Murray Rothbard's Conceived in Liberty also delves into these matters. And my own, although I'm biased, Compact of the Republic, the League of States, and the Constitution. In Chapter 2, I really get into this independence movement and what the, the Declaration of Independence truly meant, because I think that it is mischaracterized in some cases. So if you want to pick up Compact of the Republic, the League of States, and the Constitution, the link to that is in the show notes, and I'll greatly appreciate it. So, in the next episode, we will tackle the incident in 1776 that almost ended the cause for independence in one fell swoop shortly after independence began when the Continental Army is almost completely captured before this thing even got off the ground. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to this episode of Brush Fires of the Mind. If you want to subscribe to this podcast, drop by my website, www.davebenner.com, click podcast, and you can subscribe right there.